Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Denise Anderson, President of Health ISEC. I'm Anthony Guerra, Founder and Editor-in-Chief. Denise, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Anthony. All right, very good. Denise, uh, you want to tell me a little bit about your organization and your role? Sure. So I'm um, Denise Anderson. I'm President and CEO of the Health ISAC, which stands for Information Sharing and Analysis Center. Um, and just a little bit of the background on the um, ISACs, the Information Sharing and Analysis Centers were formed under a presidential directive um, from President Bill Clinton in 1998. Um, the concern at the time was Y2K to get industry to share with each other amongst the critical infrastructure sectors and with government. And so the ISACs were formed and were paired along critical infrastructure sectors, uh, which the U.S. has defined 16, uh, were in the health um, sector. The health ISAC formed in 2010. I came on board in 2015 after a stint at the financial services ISAC, which was one of the first ones to start. Uh, basically, what we do is we're a trusted community of uh, organizations that touch the patient, really, in healthcare. And we're focused on cybersecurity and physical security so that patients can receive care and get it safely. Um, and, and our membership is composed of various co- sector, subsectors within the sector, such as labs and pharmaceuticals, medical device manufacturers, pharmaceutical manufacturers, of course, hospitals and healthcare delivery organizations, anything from a large hospital system to a small clinic. And then, um, you know, insurance companies, basically anyone that touches a patient can, can be a member of ours. Very good. All right. I like to start with sort of an open-ended question. Um, what are some of the trends you're looking at, some of the main things that you're watching, looking at that you feel like your members want content around and direction and, and things like that? I guess I guess you probably have a, a couple of things you focus on. One would be providing, and you tell me, providing your members with resources and information and content and then also lobbying. I, I don't know if you're allowed to lobby or you can't lobby. Uh, but we don't lobby. You don't no, lobby. No, we're not a lobby organization, no. So we're, we're, very, yeah. um, we're very operational in nature. So we're, I like to say where the rubber hits the road. We're, we're basically looking at the threat landscape um, that is out there, whether it's cyber or physical, and then we're alerting our members to the various threats that could potentially um, be something that they face. So, for example, in last year, we provided 274 targeted alerts. Those were alerts specific to organizations um, where they either had a vulnerability um, that we were able to detect or that we saw their name on a list to be targeted. So um, that, you know, is an absolute value that our members would receive from, from getting those alerts. But we have general alerts as well, right? So as we're seeing vulnerabilities or threat actors out there. We're sharing that information with the membership. The members actually also share with each other as well. So when they're seeing things, um, they're sharing, you know, what they're seeing, what they're doing about it, or if they're having challenges with doing something about it. So it's all about members helping members and the community helping the community. Um, and, and that's, you know, really the strength of what we do. So you are a specific source for like a threat intelligence feed. So they may have other vendors that provide them with other feeds for threat intelligence, but you are also another source, correct? 
We're a source. I wouldn't call us a feed per se. We're we're a, definitely a source, and I would say that we're a highly vetted, highly trusted source because a lot of our information is coming from the members themselves. So it's what they're actually seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wouldn't, you know, it's not it's not necessarily a threat intelligence feed per se. Although we do get indicators of compromise, right? Mm-hmm. So those are the um, email addresses, headers, hash marks that that come in. Um, and we do share those out. So we, we do have high-fidelity um, indicators of compromise that, that get shared out. Any thoughts on sort of main things that you think CISOs at, at hospitals are, are looking at, thinking about from your conversations with them and interaction? It's, it's interesting. I, I do think that those CISOs that understand the threat landscape are constantly watching for whatever could be out there. And it doesn't necessarily have to be something directly targeting them. It could be something that can impact the supply chain, for example. Um, So, you know, one of the things I talk about often is that you need to be thinking of every potential scenario and every potential situation that could impact you. And one of the examples I'll give is that during the the initial stages of the war between Ukraine and Russia, um, uh, there was a satellite firm that got attacked, um, and it took down their operation. What people didn't realize was that a lot of wind farms, those wind turbines in Germany, uh, relied on those satellites to operate. And so it took down electricity um, in, in Germany and some other areas in Europe, as also Internet communications. And so those impacted operations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to be, even though it's not something directly targeting healthcare, you have to be very mindful of the landscape out there and how you can potentially be impacted by events that happen. Yeah, mindful of things that can cause disruption sort of downstream. Um, I looked at your opening letter from your uh, your report in 2022, um, and you really focused on resilience. Um Huge, huge issue, sort of resilience, business continuity, planning, recovering, or dealing with one of the things that I've been focusing on a lot. The the Joint Commission came out with a very interesting, I thought it was really interesting, paper in August last month called Preserving Patient Safety After a Cyber Attack. It's all part of the issue of continuing operations in the face of a disruption to electronic systems. Um, I'd just like maybe your thoughts around that. To me, that's just a monumentally huge issue. And the paper from the Joint Commission, when I read it, I was like, oh, my God. It's like what you have to do to prepare. And the 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 idea of going to paper, the change and what it requires is astounding and almost incomprehensible that it can be done. So it feels like this is a big, big, huge issue right now because we see more and more outages we're seeing them left and right. Your thoughts? Yeah, so I think the reality is is that at some point somebody will be attacked. I, I don't think that you can or be impacted by an attack, um, whether it's on them directly or on a supplier or, or partner. And um, so you have to be thinking, this is back to my earlier comments, you have to be thinking of all the potential impacts to your organization and how you can continue to deliver what it is that you deliver. So it goes back to enterprise risk management and looking at what are the crown jewels of it of what I do 
and what does it take for me to continue to produce or do those crown jewels, and for how long, right? Because it's not, sometimes many of these incidents can go out for months. So you've got to understand what potential impacts can be and how you can actually bring operations along those lines for a continued and sustained period of time. It's it's not easy, um, but I think it, it goes back. I was actually a, a firefighter EMT uh, for 20 years, and we when I was coming through the ranks, we looked, you know, those old ADC map books. That's how we found an address. Now it's all automated, and that's, Skill. We had, to, you know, we tested continuously. We knew all the streets in our um, area of response, and um, we, you know, when the call came, we knew where to go immediately when we turned on the station. That skill is lost because it's now all made electronic. And I think that's the same thing in the hospital, right? The old school doctors that were used to pen and paper, it might not be as hard for them, although it is an issue. I won't, you know, deny that, but. It would be a little bit easier for them, the younger generation who have been raised on the electronic communications and electronic processes of patient care. It's harder for them to adapt because they've not had that. They've, that experience has not been there for them. So it is, it is a huge issue, um, and it's something that people need to be very mindful of um, when um, they're looking at how to remain resilient and to continue patient care. Yeah, you mentioned the time frame that that we're sort of want a scenario plan for, and in the paper it was four weeks from the Joint Commission, <laughs> four four weeks, which is astounding yeah. because I think the the inclination for the average employee, maybe the average clinician, is okay. The systems are down. Let's go to lunch, and when we come back, right? It's not too continue. Mm-hmm. It's sort of let's just wait for them to come back up because again, it's so inconceivable of how to move forward. You mentioned the preparation that's required. Um, so here's a here's a question, and this is something I, I again I've been focusing on for a couple of years now as I have interviews with different CISOs. You know what what is your role, Mister or Mrs. CISO, in making sure your health system is prepared to deal with a cyber outage? Like how far do you take the ball? And it, it's really interesting in that Joint Commission paper, which I would recommend everyone. They talk about it being under, and this has been said before, under the overall emergency preparation department or, or unit of the hospital, the one that prepares for a hurricane, anything. So cyber has to be under that. So my thought recently was the CISOs have to, they can't just assume that this is being covered by emergency management. They have to proactively initiate discussions to make sure, hey, by the way, as you're doing Hurricane X and Y and Z and whatever, you this is a real scenario, and I want to work with you. I want to help you understand, because you're going to run it. I'm going to be the key resource as you run this. So I think people need to think like that. They they have to be proactive. Know that they don't have to handle the whole thing if you're a CISO, but you have to make sure, do your best to get that under emergency management. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, that goes back to incident response and incident response management. And, you know, like, as I said, as being in a firefighter, they do that every day, right? It's it's running a crisis after a crisis. And they have a plan. They have a pre-plan. And every 
everything is laid out. There's a division for um, finances, there's a division for logistics, there's a division for response, and they're all working the incident. Um, likewise, an organization should be doing the same thing. Cyber, I would argue, is one component of the crisis, right? Um, so, like, as you're alluding to, they would be the, the division um, resource for the cyber aspects or impacts of the, of the incident. So, absolutely, there should be incident response management. It should fall under the enterprise risk management plan, and people should be prepared. I always say it's, you should know your, you know your response, know your impacts, um, write a plan, have a plan, exercise the plan, and make sure that everybody knows the plan because when an incident happens, you don't want to be scrambling about who do I call for this or who do I call for that, what do I do. You need to know. Um, and I'm not, you're not going to be able to perfectly envision every scenario that can exist, but you can have plans in place that can attempt to get you down the response path. Yeah, and, and organizations can't expect to see so too manage everything about a cyber incident because the, the it's going to stop at some point. Their responsibility is going to stop and someone else has to take over. So for example, you know, we can deal with the, the cyber element of it. We can make the decision about systems having to be taken offline, but the CISO is not going to make sure that the paper forms are there. They're not going to make sure the right. printer ink is there. So if that ball doesn't get picked up by somebody else, you're going to have a huge gap in that resiliency plan. So it has to be enterprise level, non-IT, non-security running the whole thing. Right. And everybody needs to have a voice, right? I mean, there has to be, everyone needs to be at the table because not everyone's going to understand all the consequences or impacts of an incident upon that particular aspect of the operation. So, Everyone's voice needs to be there, especially in the planning process. And that's, again, I'm a fan of checklists, right, where you're alluding to there would be a check mark. Do we have the paper forms in place? You know, are they updated? You know, all that kind of stuff so that it doesn't get missed in the chaos of response. Yeah, well, you're talking to the right guy. I mean, I'm the biggest, you know, I'm a checklist guy. <laughs> I, I'm trying yeah. to teach my kids. Trying to teach my kids. If there's 11 things you need to bring to school, don't try and remember all 11 every day. Make a checklist right. on your phone. That's right. Beautiful. It's so easy. Reminders, checklists, calendar appointments. This is how you run your life these days, right? Let's use the tools. But uh, And they use it on the clinical side, right? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of checklists. In airlines, everywhere there's checklists. And the beauty of this stuff is when you establish a checklist or a process, um, it you can continually improve it. You don't have to reinvent yes. the wheel every time, but know that it's not set in stone. It's never done. It's always subject right. to improvement. Is, is this not how we move forward in life in almost every aspect? That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, I find sometimes, it's, it, right to what you're saying is, we, ha we do many of these things. We've done it as firefighters. We've done it as doctors, you know, where they have the steps in place for dealing with a procedure or an operation or whatever the case may be. But we don't bridge that gap and bring it over to other processes. So, like, we tend to do things in silos and don't think about, hey, we do this over here. Why can't we bring that over to this side and work it? So it does. It takes a mindset where you're looking at, you know, from above at the whole thing and, and then, you know, being able to say, hey, why can't we use this here? It's absolutely something that we can absolutely do. 
Um, and so it, it is, it's a mindset. Yeah. And, and I would just, you know, get your thoughts on this. It's, it's not the CISO's responsibility to make sure the paper forms are there and the printer ink is there, but it is your responsibility to bring that to emergency management and just tell them like, cause you're at that level, you want the business to continue to operate. So you have mm -hmm. to try and at least put the business in a position to be successful, which is again, articulating this, voicing this, helping emergency management who they don't know cyber inside and out, helping them right. understand these scenarios. They may not think, be thinking of these scenarios, do those tabletops to say, okay, now here's a scenario where we're going offline, right? I'm going to reach out to you in emergency management and say, we need to come offline in two hours. Now you go have to go do a bunch of stuff that I'm not going to do. You have to do it, but they need to understand the, the scenarios. They may have no idea that things could go that way, right? Right. And I, you know, I would argue that the CISOs don't even know everything either. I mean, it's, but it's their job to articulate what the impact is, right? So you can't just say we're taking the systems offline. You're saying, when we take the systems offline, this is what's going to happen. You're not going to have access to patient records. You're not going to have access to images. You know, those kinds of things, they need to articulate clearly that here's what the impact of this action is going to be. Then the response team would figure out, okay, what do we need to do to address that impact? That, that's the start of the plan, right? Yeah, and you mentioned uh, in an article I looked at this morning about an outage, um, the two things you mentioned. One was, uh, this is someone at the health system saying the biggest impacts were, number one, our ability that was impacted, our ability to do imaging studies and look at them in real time was gone, which is a huge part of diagnosing, right, clinical issues. Right. Um, and that the second thing was the EMR allowed us to look back at old records, and that has been almost 100% taken away. So the two, you know, those are the two big impacts that we have to, that have to be thought through on the clinical side, right? Because, right. and that's right. why, you know, they're diverting patients. And I made a joke the other day that if I knew my health system, my local health system was down or subject to a ransomware attack, I'd divert myself. You wouldn't have to worry about diverting. <laughs> yeah. I would divert myself. But anyway, um, your thoughts about the, you know, uh, again, that's the, the clinicians having to think through what they're going to do. So right. interesting. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you articulate what the, what the impact's going to be, and then they've got to figure out, well, how do I continue my job with this impact? You know, what do I need to do on my end to make sure that I can still treat a patient? And I mean, access to images is, is huge. Um, you know, I would argue when you're doing operations or anything like that, lab results, I mean, all of that stuff is, is very, very um, reliant on, on electronic records nowadays. I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. And I don't know how much, you know, you've been thinking about this, but I've just been reading a lot of stuff about this generative AI stuff and the security implications of this. And, and some articles I looked at recently talked about, um, you know, one of the big concerns is, I guess, people, you know, clinicians, people in the health system doing queries. So you're going to do a generative AI query and chat, chat GPT or something. So you dump some stuff in, right? You're dumping right. stuff in and then you're hoping to get some sort of response back. Well, there's concerns there that the dumping in part 
could be dumping in PHI maybe, or you're dumping in things that, and because you don't know if these things are going to pop up in somebody else's query because they're used now as part of the AI in its, in its brain, so to speak. There, there are some issues there. A lot of people are they're starting to roll this stuff out. There's a lot of thinking about this. Do you have any thoughts on, on this sort of generative AI area? Yeah, I mean, I think, so like anything, like technology, right, when, when we made things electronic, there are great benefits to it. So I think AI is going to bring a lot of advances, a lot of changes in medicine, really positive things, right? But it's also going to create a lot of challenges like anything else. So one of my concerns would be more of the disinformation mm-hmm. side of the, of the coin, where you, you just alluded to people putting, um, you know, putting a query out and then requesting information back. I think if someone manipulates that and gives bad information um, that uh, is potentially used to treat patients with, you know, um, so that, that would definitely be a concern of mine. I mean, I, I can see where that could be very malicious. Um, and I, I think there's a, a lot of other ways um, obviously creating personas, imitating personas for authorization to systems, those kinds of things. So I think that there is, there's a lot that we need to be mindful of. I don't think it's anything, you know, like, like over time, I think it's the same things we need to be concerned about, which is availability, integrity, and access. But it's just going to be in a different way. Yeah, interesting point. Uh, it, it makes me think of that data poisoning concept uh, yeah. that you have to watch out about and i interviewed christian demeff um who's mm-hmm. a, a doctor into cybersecurity. we you know we know him he's well known with that paper about the regional impacts of a ransomware incident so he's done some great work um and one of the yeah. really interesting when i interviewed him one of the things he brought up was you know he said he was like think about this um it, somebody somebody wants to uh do harm through in a health system um and ai Generative AI gives them the ability, if they're able to sort of influence uh, prescribing electronically and they want to do harm, generative AI gives you ability to come up with a harmful but not obviously harmful prescription. So because mm-hmm. there are things that would be complete red flags, totally ridiculous, no one would ever follow through on them, but there are there are ways to do harm less obviously so it doesn't get caught anyway um data poisoning a very interesting concept any more thoughts about that yeah no i mean that probably is what keeps me up at night i mean imagine um that a threat actor goes in and um says i've changed some records in your organization um on blood type randomly a hundred records of your patients i somebody that was a b positive is now an a negative um, imagine what that would do. Number one, they don't even, they don't technically even have to do it, but even the thought of them doing it, how can you trust your records again, right? You're going to have to go back through and clean everything up. Um, and, uh, but if they really did do it, think of the consequences of that action, or they could then threaten ransom. Hey, I could tell you which, which of those hundred records I did it, but you got to pay me, you know, so much uh, money to get that information. So I, I definitely could see where that, or you've got the terrorist aspect too, right, where they go in quietly to do it 
because they want to create harm. That their intent, their motivation is for that. So I that data data integrity is probably the biggest issue for me. I think because I think it doesn't take much to to really decrease the trust in the data. Yeah, great point. Great point. So you know, there's different ways they get in. Um, there's sort of uh, the technical way, you know, really fancy hacking, right? I mean, really, really uh, advanced. They they really know their stuff from an IT point of view, right? So that that's one way to hack in. Um, that requires a lot more skill. Um, and then there's the basic phishing, social engineering, right? You don't have to really, you're just writing an email, you know, email or phone calls or a combination of, of researching people in uh, on their social networks to to find ways to to make it seem as if you know more than you do. Uh, that's something anybody can do. So there's different ways and there's arguments about which is more prevalent, but they're both serious. So at the very least, we want to stop people from clicking on emails, clicking on things they didn't, creating a nice cyber culture where people are sensitive to these things. So that's a big responsibility that all CISOs don't want to do. They want to make sure they have a sophisticated cyber culture in their organizations where people aren't doing silly things and then dealing with people who make mistakes. And, you know, I've heard many CISOs, they really don't want to take a punitive approach. It's just not the way they want to approach things, more coaching. And, and it's been said, you know, you should see them as a victim, not as a, a someone who's done, you know, but there's a balance. There's always a balance because somebody who makes five mistakes, you know, come on, it's a, Right. At some point, we change from patting you on the back and saying you'll do better next time to something has to has to change. And they, you know, they have to work with HR and all these kind of things for uh, dealing with these issues. But overall, your thought on how to create a positive cyber culture where people are, are thinking right, they say that, you know, this is your biggest vulnerability is your people sometimes. So your thoughts. That's right. Yeah, no, there. I absolutely agree. People are the low-hanging fruit, and there, they, there is a reason why the Nigerian prince schemes still are around, <laughs> right? Because people fall for them. Yeah. Um, and you would think, what is wrong with you? Why you? Why? How can you fall for this? But they do, um, right. because they are totally engineered. Um, so I, I agree with you. I think you know we see this argument all the time in some of our our threads about do you. Are you punitive or are you, um, you know, more educate, you know, more educational in nature when it comes to employees and clicking on, on, you know, sample fishes mm-hmm. or those kinds of things? Um, and, and we see we see the gamut, but most people do want to take more of the positive a- approach, right? So I I believe that by getting people to understand the impacts of clicking on that link and educating them on, you know, why they shouldn't do it because this is what's going to ha- potentially happen, that people will then think twice, hopefully, or at least have some understanding of their role in helping the organization prevent harm so that then patients can be treated effectively, Right. So I think when you couch it that way, a lot of times you just get that same rote, don't click on links, don't click on links, look for this, look for that. But if you understand, wait a minute, if I click on a link and this is what could potentially happen, and you know maybe my aunt who's being treated on an operating table can't be operated on, you know those, it kind of helps put context 
around why they play a very critical role in helping an organization stay safe. Yeah, and you just made me think about identity and access management. So we can't have 10,000 employees that each, if they click on the wrong link, can destroy the organization. Right. You can't have that. That's why we have rights and permissions. And, you know, 99% of those 10,000, hopefully, theoretically, if they do click on the wrong link, there is a minor amount of harm, not that catastrophic harm, because they have low level rights and permissions. Um, And this is a huge area. Right. Identity and access, a huge undertaking, not easy, extremely complicated. It's always changing. But ideally, you want to have the minimum rights and permissions for your role. Everyone should have the minimum and it should change immediately upon the role changing and the needs changing. That should flex and it should be super tight, but it's way easier said than done when you have, again, these people are changing roles constantly, needing access, changing departments. So it's a massive, massive issue, but it it sounds like, you know, that's going to be key. Getting your arms around that's going to be key to minimizing damage if somebody does click. Does that make sense? That's right. That's right. Absolutely. I mean, I would I argue that education um, is one aspect of protecting identity and access management. So, yeah. All right. Very good, Denise. We're almost out of time. I, I want to give you an opportunity for your final thoughts, um, and I'll couch it this way. Um, anything more you either want to know the folks to know about Health ISAC? Uh, I know you're very well known. Uh, your entity is very well known and leveraged by a lot of folks. There may be some who either are new or just aren't aware um, what you offer so uh, and why they might want to become involved. So your thoughts around that or overall any advice to the CISOs at the health systems? So, yeah, I mean, I, I would be remiss in not saying, because I do consider myself to be an evangelist for information sharing, that we should be sharing information with each other. Um, and shame on us for not doing it. There's a variety, various reasons why people don't do it, but it's so easy to do. And it's so beneficial. We have so many examples of where information sharing has protected organizations from harm, um, has protected the community from harm. And so I really, really encourage organizations to really think about sharing information with each other, with an organization like Health ISAC, with whoever it is that you think would be beneficial, whether it's law enforcement or any other entity, to do it because it, it is. It doesn't cost anything. It's easy. Um, many people get hung up on um, the type of information that's shared, but really to be effective, it doesn't. it's not as sensitive as people think it might be, right? Indicators of compromise um, can be very generic. Um, and so I really encourage people to really share with each other, um, especially when they're seeing incidents within their organi- or own organizations and how they can benefit from that. Because one day, you know, we have this saying, one person's defense will become everyone else's offense. And that's really the essence of Health ISAC is, is the community helping the community so that we can deliver effective patient care because we'll all be patients one day or know a patient. And so we want to make sure that they get treated. No, I think we'll definitely all be patients one day. Yes. (laughs) Yes. 
Uh, but I did interview John Rigi from the American Hospital Association, who I'm sure you know, yeah. and he mentioned uh, this will be published uh, soon. But he mentioned that there are certain legal protections when you share information. So there are. Um, and and as you said, um, when it, when it happens to you, sharing may not be the first thing on your mind, but uh, you would want everyone else to share, right? Because yeah. you would want to yeah. know to help. So. You know, exactly. if we can figure out a way to do it and have those conversations beforehand and figure it all out, we can be more comfortable, you know, talking to legal, talking to making sure uh, privacy, because sharing will help. Exactly. Absolutely. Right. That's right. It, it, that's part of the incident response plan. I would love to see that as a checkbox on the list. Right. Share information with uh, help ISAC or whatever ISAC you are in your sector um, or whoever it is that you want to share with. But, you know, that would be one step in the process because. To your point, when it happens to your partner or you're connected to them and they're not sharing information with you, that doesn't help anybody. So, um, yeah, it, the more we can prepare and are willing to um, figure out the ways to share with each other before an incident happens, the better off everyone will be. And I love your point. It should be on the checklist. I absolutely love that, and I think it should be there. Um uh, every CISO's checklist as they talk to emergency management works through these things. You know, when, you know, it may not be the first thing you do, right? You're dealing with the incident, but when and how can we share for the benefit of other health systems absolutely should be on that checklist. So great point. Yeah. Great idea. Denise, a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, talking today. Thank you, Anthony, for having me. <laughs>